I would invite you to turn in our Father's Word to Exodus 24 for our evening study. I am sure that everyone here agrees and believes wholeheartedly that entrance into covenant with God involves sacrificial blood. No one can enter into the kingdom of heaven. No one can enter into a salvation provided by God without the sacrifice, without the sacrificial blood. And, of course, in the New Testament, this is clearly taught within the uh, books of the Bible about the blood atonement by Christ Jesus. It's interesting to me, and I appreciate the words on Romans 12, but when you study the book of Romans, I don't know if you've ever done it this way or not, but the book of Romans is arranged according to the order of the sacrifices in Leviticus. And if you trace it through step by step, you can see one sacrifice after another leading up to chapter 12, which is the dedication sacrifice. And uh, we're going to look at uh, two of those sacrifices in this passage uh, as we look at um, Exodus 24. If it is true that entering into covenant with God is based upon the sacrificial death of Christ, then uh, it is also true that when God establishes covenants, they are established by the shedding of blood. And what we're dealing with in Exodus 24 is the establishment of the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. It's an important step in the history of Israel. And if you think back through the progression, especially in the book of Exodus, you have the first part of the book where God is building up the people, the nation. So if you're going to build a nation, uh, you have to have four things to have a, a, a nation. You have to have, you have to have a heritage something that is drawing them all together. Uh, we call that Genesis. You also have to have people. And in Genesis, uh, the promise was there, but not the numbers, until you get to Exodus. When you read in chapter 1, God supernaturally is enabling the Israelites, even under bondage, to be fruitful and multiply. And all the language in Exodus 1 is borrowed from Genesis 1, that they are multiplying and uh, swarming and filling the earth so that it's a large number of people, you also have to have a constitution, rules and laws and whatever, and that's what you'll get in the book of Exodus. But then you have to have a land, and we'll leave that up to Joshua. But we're dealing here with the establishment of the constitution, or covenant, however you want to say it, with the nation of Israel. In the in the nature of the development that we have both in um, the nation of Israel and in the book of Exodus, we also have uh, principles here that are going to be applied tonight easily. Um, principle of worship, because the whole constitution of Israel, the covenant, is going to be inaugurated with an elaborate ceremony at Mount Sinai. And it's not just arbitrarily developed as a nice thing to do to establish a covenant. It is a magnificent worship service. 
and one that would stand as a pattern and a paradigm for ages to come, as most of these Old Testament passages will provide. <clears throat> this one, though, is based on the work God is doing. He has redeemed them out of Egypt with the plagues. He has destroyed all the gods of Egypt, and especially the Pharaoh, and uh, even ensuring for the next generation his son is never going to be Horus and have a chance to be Osiris as the pharaohs were supposed to be. They'll be destroyed. And he destroys the whole army at the crossing of the sea. And then he demonstrates to the Israelites as they trek through the desert that he can provide food for them. He can provide water for them. He can provide protection from armies from them. And he builds it up till the time they get to Mount Sinai where he explains through Moses to the people that his goal is that they are going to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And that's going to be the whole purpose of this kind of a covenant. If you were just taking people who were escaping from Egypt and you wanted to make them into a nation, you don't need a covenant ceremony like this. But if they're going to be a holy nation and if they're going to be a kingdom of priests, you have to have such a service, such a confirmation ceremony that will demonstrate what it means to be a holy nation and what it means to become a kingdom of priests. They can't be a kingdom of priests unless they're a holy nation. And they're going to have all these instructions given to them at uh, Mount Sinai and all the things that they must do to comply with the word of the Lord. But it starts with this glorious ceremony in Exodus 24 where God is going to inaugurate the covenant and he's going to do it very deliberately and very specifically. If you trace with me through this chapter, you'll see the patterns emerging. And if you are at a loss for how to organize a worship service for Sunday, just try this one from Exodus 24, and you'll, you'll be fine. We first have, at the beginning of the chapter, the call to worship. And I think this is often treated as um, unimportant. It's just sort of like the national anthem at a baseball game. You know, just get it over with so we can see the good game. Uh, but it should be taken very carefully into consideration because the worship that you have in your church is a service. You are there to serve the Lord in the way that you worship. And to be called to do that is certainly going to be an important part of the beginning, to remind people that, that we're not here just because we chose to be here. We're here because God called us to come into his presence with praise and thanksgiving. Here, you read this at the very beginning. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Uh, they can't all, the whole nation can't come up, of course. There's, they would swarm Mount Sinai if they did. But it's always going to be this representation, the elders and the priests and the spiritual leaders that will be representing the community. So they're all supposed to come up to the Lord at Mount Sinai. 
And uh, he chooses to do this on the top of a mountain in the Sinai. Very symbolic in the ancient Near East because going up onto a mountain to go and see the Lord in whatever way it's going to be carried out uh, is representing leaving this world and uh, coming up above it, coming up higher. Um, in liturgical services, uh, when it comes to the part for the ceremony of the Lord's Supper, it usually begins with a line from Revelation, but it recalls Exodus 24, lift up your hearts. And the congregation would respond with, we lift them up. In other words, in our hearts, we are transporting our minds and hearts into the presence of God. And we're forgetting about the game this afternoon, and we're forgetting about the roast in the oven and all the other things. But we are, we are now coming into the presence in a way that should be a life-changing experience for us. And so here they're supposed to come up. But notice the pattern. Come up to the Lord. You are to worship, but at a distance. Come here, keep your distance. That's the tension that's there. Uh, years ago, before I even uh, got studying all of this uh, for my own benefit to begin with, um, I grew up in Southern California. We used to have lots of church conferences and whatever, and even back then it was getting pretty casual. Um, combination beach parties and baptisms and things like that, but uh, that was California. And they, we had one conference speaker who was speaking from these passages in Exodus, and he was talking about how we describe our relationship in the covenant with God. And he said, whatever you're going to say, just remember from Exodus that you can't be pals with a living, consuming fire. There's a big difference. You're coming into the presence of the Lord. Exodus says he's a consuming fire. Yes, you are invited to come in. Yes, you have been enabled to come in. You have received forgiveness. So you draw near. But you don't get too near. Uh, you, do, you don't take it for granted. Uh, fearing the Lord is a very common expression in the Bible for true worship. It's a difficult word to define because it's used for reverence, adoration, praise. Uh, it's... You, you, what you fear, you draw near to because natural curiosity, you want to see it, uh, but you don't go too close. When I lived in Pittsburgh, we often went up to Niagara Falls, and I can illustrate it very beautifully for there. Niagara Falls uh, really gives me an illustration of what it means to fear. You want to draw near. You can stand there for hours and watch that fall, and you can look at all that water, and it's just absolutely breathtaking. Uh, but you're not going to go over it in a barrel. Uh, that's where foolishness takes over. There is a drawing back because it's a power that is way beyond you. And so when he is drawing this out now with different words, you come up and worship, but you keep your distance because he is a consuming fire. We have the word worship. It's a pretty good word in English. I don't think a definition from the etymology of the English word, worship, helps us. We have to worry more what the Hebrew word says, if that's what we're really dealing with. And the Hebrew word 
like one of the main words for worship in the New Testament, is very specific. It, it doesn't really always translate into worship. It means bow yourself low to the ground. That's it. Uh, now, you could do it without worshiping. Uh, people could bow down to Joseph when he showed up in the throne room, but they weren't uh, worshiping him. It's a word that actually means like you're coiling up. You would, um, you, you read sometimes how Moses fell on his face. Well, that's not just, you know, flat. He would sink to his knees. And then he would lean forward and put his head or forehead to the ground. And if he was really urgent in his prayers, he'd stretch out his hands and put them on the ground and pray. Very much like the posture of uh, Islam, um, coiling up, getting down, getting on their knees, and, uh, and praying to whatever they pray to. But this, this is the concept that's involved. What they have done in the Bible is they have taken one word that describes a, a posture that best fits the attitude of worship. And even in the New Testament, one of the Greek words is that you kneel down uh, because those acts are part of the reverence and worship that they gave to the Lord. Um, when they got into the Lord's presence, they didn't just sit back in an easy chair and say, oh, this is great. No, they came in the presence of the Lord. They fell down as if they were dead. They fell down on their face. They bowed down to the ground. They were afraid to look uh, because of the reverence and the fear that was there in approaching the Lord. So they're supposed to come up and worship, but they're supposed to keep their distance. Uh, you can't get near and take a closer look. There were some people that tried that with the Ark of the Covenant, and it didn't work so well for them. You, your curiosity stays away. You, you can't treat it as an ordinary box. This is the Ark of the Covenant. But here, uh, it's not just that you're, you're drawing in to be close to the Lord. He is always going to be the Holy Lord God. And so they had to keep their distance. It's also a little bit foreboding to see the group that is here. Uh, if you know where the story goes in the Pentateuch, it is sad that a two, two young men, Nadab and Abihu, will end up bringing foreign fire into the altar in Leviticus 10, and the fire of the altar will lash out and consume them on the spot because they were bringing something into the presence and service of the Lord that didn't belong to them. It's the Old Testament equivalent of preaching another gospel. They are bringing pagan fire. What went wrong with those men? They have been here on the mountain just a month earlier or so, and they have seen this. They've been in the presence of God. They've eaten in the presence of God. They've celebrated this. And then all of a sudden, uh, they do that. And what about Aaron? I mean, I know he was chosen by God because he speaks very well, but uh, speaking very well got him into trouble. I mean, what about his ridiculous statements? We just threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. You know, who in their right mind would even conceive of that? But he's here on the mountain. So my point is great religious experiences don't guarantee that you are going to be 
always right or always faithful. There's too much that is going on in the world, in the spiritual conflict. And just having a high, holy experience doesn't, doesn't make you bulletproof. It doesn't make you uh, automatically a super saint. Uh, too many people have learned the hard way, and they're here on this mountain uh, there with the Lord. But this group and the elders, they're to come up, and that's the call. They're to come up for the purpose of worshiping. In other words, God is saying, come up, but get down. Get down on your knees. Moses sees the burning bush, and he wants to go by and see it because it's very interesting, and he's curious, so he starts that direction. God says, wait a minute. Get your shoes off. This is holy ground. And the response is there throughout the Bible. And I think in many of our churches, we have lost that. We don't have a sense that when we enter into a Sunday morning service, that we are coming into the presence of a holy God. And this is special. Worship is always against the world. But when we go into a service and it is so much like the world and so much patterned after it, uh, we have forgot the meaning of the word holy. And we don't understand it whenever we sing hymns about holiness. But here the Lord God is telling them, you come up and worship, but you don't come too far and you don't draw too close. You keep your distance. Um, And they understood this because they were afraid later in the book uh, we were afraid to do this because he might lash out against us. And and as uh, Lewis describes in his writings, uh, he's not safe. And that's a point I think we have dismissed. Uh, he, he, is, he is the sovereign creator of the whole universe. He is the judge of the whole world. He is the redeemer of our soul's And yes, he loves us, we love him, we have fellowship with him, but the simple fact is, he's still God, and uh, he isn't uh, what you would call in ordinary parlance safe, um, because he's holy. But this is the call to worship. And I think when we call people to come into a worship service, that uh, when we pick passages and invitations that we use, Uh, They have to be chosen carefully, and we have to make people realize you're coming in here to serve the Lord. And that's your primary opportunity, and that's your primary duty. You know what the highest title is in the Old Testament that any human being can have? The servant of the Lord. It doesn't describe every believer. It describes the truly faithful servants. Moses is a servant of the Lord. David is a servant of the Lord. The Messiah, for goodness sakes, is a servant of the Lord. Uh, And Paul just makes a simple substitution for the Lord to the holy name of Jesus, bondservant of Jesus Christ. That means that it is controlling that, that Lord, that one that you are a servant for, is controlling everything that you're doing, and you're doing his will faithfully. It was... It was something that uh, God looked for, for people who would lead the congregation and lead them in their service on the world. In the next section of this passage, we're going to have the provision of the covenant. 
God is going to establish the covenant here at Sinai with these people. And um, there are several steps here that I think you'll recognize from basic worship. First of all, Moses went and he told the people all the words and the laws. Uh, He simply will declare, this is what God is saying. You're here because we're going to establish this covenant. You need to know what God said it's all about. So he is going to proclaim to them what has been revealed to him already. These are God's words. These are God's laws. And uh, know what you're getting in for here. You don't enter into a treaty or a covenant unless you realize what the requirements are, what uh, what the objective is. So he will stand there in front of all these elders and tell them personally, verbatim, what God has said to him. And, of course, they will in turn pass it on to the tribes because these are the elders, and they're going to be the ones who carry the message out. So the first part is going to be the proclamation of God's word. You need to hear it. You need to hear it directly. You need to hear exactly what he said. You need to listen. And this is what he is doing here in the first step. That is followed then with their response, and I love their response. Moses tells them these are the words and the laws. They responded unanimously, one voice. Uh, Everything the Lord has said, uh, this Bible translates it, we will do. Um, In biblical languages, if you have studied them, you realize there are all different kinds of nuances for the verbs. And uh, this particular tense isn't always going to be the simple future. Uh, It is, I think, in this passage, a very strong desiderative use. All that the Lord has said we are willing to do. I think that's more accurate. Sounds too presumptuous to say, oh, yes, everything he said we'll do. No, they wouldn't enter into a covenant like that, but we are willing to do Uh, This is what we want to do. We want to live according to these rules. We want to live according to these laws. And so a very beautiful response from them. We don't quite do enough on that level either, actually. Uh, We have scripture readings all the time in our churches where I'm from, and usually when the scripture is read, everybody kind of puts out a a refrain, you know, the word of the Lord. That's it. Uh, Well, we knew it was the word of the Lord before you started reading, but that's uh, glad they agree. Why don't they say something like this? Uh, All that the Lord has said, we are willing to do. That means you've got to think about it before you agree to do that. That means you have to have it in your mind. But a lot of people don't even do that when the Scripture is read or or when something is done in the uh, service where they really want to respond to it, they don't quite know how to do it. Um, we had a, when I was in seminary, we had what was called a seminary grunt. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but pastor, preacher, teacher, somebody up in the pulpit would say something very profound. And the most you could get out of that crowd was, hmm. <laughs> I guess that meant amen, hallelujah, whatever. I have a young man in... Uh, in Birmingham, um, 
He's not a member of the seminary. He's not a student at the seminary. He just shows up in class every once in a while. He's the pastor. He's an African-American pastor of a Baptist church in the worst part of Birmingham. And he does things that uh, puts us to shame with the way they minister and the way they serve. But he, he comes in, he looks awful because he's not even dressed up right. You know, he's not fancy like everybody else because he just spent the night down at the mission. And he, he doesn't go down there in the morning to preach to them. He says, no, you got to go in at night and welcome them when they come in and talk to them, get to know them and spend the night there so they see you're not just coming to preach at them. But that's the kind of guy he is. But he would be in the class and he woke up more classes than I had. He was so much fun. Uh, I would start teaching something, and I would be getting interested, and all of a sudden I'd hear from him in the back of the room, launch out into the deep, Rev. <laughs> and it was, it was wonderful. Everybody else loosened up, and they realized, uh, here's somebody. He's here because he wants to be. He's into it, and he wants more. I wish that we had some kinds of ways of doing that when the scripture is read, that this is the best thing I've heard today. You know, it's very important that it's read well and very important that people have the opportunity to respond with commitment. And I think that's what's going on here. So the scripture, the word of God is read. People respond to it. So the next step is they have to have sacrifices. So we read that... uh, got up early the next morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar to consecrate the altar, of course. So they've agreed to the word. They want to, they want to obey this. Now it's time to establish the covenant, and it has to be done with sacrifice. And so he is arranging all of this. They build this altar. They set up these pillars, which will represent the tribes. And then he has the young men go and prepare and bring in to sacrifice uh, these animals. And there's only going to be two kinds of sacrifices here. One is the whole burnt offering, and the other is the peace offering. Your Bible might say something else, fellowship offering, whatever, but it's the peace offering. And um, it's important for us to understand first what these mean, but also what is not here. Uh, They are not at this point going to begin as they normally would as worshipers when they came up to Jerusalem with a sin offering. That was the first one they always had to make. It wasn't just a sin offering, it was a purification offering. So that when you would come up to Jerusalem, if over the last four or five months since you've been there, you came in contact with carcasses, you ate the wrong kind of food, you had some skin disease, whatever else, you had to bring a purification offering. And if at the same time you happen to have sinned over the last six months, then it would also be covering your sin. But the catch is, the sin offering was only permitted for sins of ignorance. You cannot offer a sin offering in Israel for a high crime or for capital offense, or for the sin of the high hand. That's why David, in his confession of sin, if you wanted sacrifice, I would bring it. 
There's no sacrifice David could bring. He can't bring a peace offering. He's not at peace with God. He can't bring in a little goat and say, I'm sorry. No, you can't do that with a capital crime. He had to wait until the Day of Atonement when all of the sins would be removed. But if they were going to offer the sin offering, it was always the start. You are cleaning out your life and and covering for the uh, sickness and the disease and the childbirth and all the things that went on and any sins you had to commit, those would have to be done first. But that's not appropriate here. Because here, this is a covenant establishment, and it's not an ordinary service where all the people have to come in and confess their sins and and, uh, get right with God before they can carry on. This is a different kind of service. There was also a reparation offering, which they wouldn't bring either. Reparation offering was just another sacrifice that is a sin sacrifice, but it uh, it involved money, <laughs> a special sin offering for money crimes. If you defrauded somebody, if you found something that was theirs and didn't give it back, or if you hadn't paid your tithes for two years, you couldn't just bring a sin offering. You had to bring this one, and it was much more elaborate. First thing you had to do was pay back everything you defrauded from the people you defrauded. No matter how many years or how much it was, you pay that back. Then you also had to confess to the priest. He would add a 20% surcharge to that amount you defrauded, which goes to the temple. See, I always thought the IRS has studied Leviticus. They really know what they're doing. But you had to pay that back. Now you're ready to go in and kill the animal and enter into the sanctuary. Uh, but that doesn't come up here because they haven't been the people of God. They haven't even been to the covenant yet. Uh, that'll come later when they start their ordinary worship. But the two that they do offer is the whole burnt offering. That's Leviticus 1. It's the atoning sacrifice. It's always given at a worship service in ancient Israel. And it's rightly called the whole burnt offering because everything goes up in smoke. Jewish scholars call it the Holocaust offering. Everything goes up in smoke. And what it means, you bring in a whole burnt offering, you are using that animal to bring to the Lord for atonement, and uh, it represents you. And so if it's all going to be up, uh, burnt up, then it means that you are being uh, consumed in the representation of this animal. Total surrender to God. And the Lord burns the whole thing up, a completely burnt sacrifice, and it descends with a sweet aroma to heaven, total acceptance by God. That's what we mean by atonement. Total surrender to God, total acceptance by God. And that's what they're going to do here, because you can't have a covenant that you establish with God unless it starts with the whole burnt offering because the atonement is going to be the basis of everything you're doing. Once they had done that, there were a couple of other things that they would do, but then they would have what is called the peace offering that shows up in Leviticus. The sacrifices and the sacrificial system and sacrificial worship worship was not sad, dreary, lamentable, whatever, because the greatest celebration came with the peace offering. This is a very different sacrifice. You don't make this offering in the way we would describe a peace offering today. Say you have uh, 
some vigorous fellowship with your spouse in the morning, and on the way home you decide you better pick up a peace offering and come in, that is not this. Uh, You do not offer the peace offering to establish peace with God. That's clear. You will offer the peace offering to celebrate the fact that you are at peace with God. And Leviticus is very clear. If you don't, if you do it because you're not at peace with God, that's a death penalty in Israel. That's pretty severe. So they're going to offer the whole burnt offering, which is atonement. Then they're going to offer the peace offering. And the distinction between the peace offering and all the other offerings that they could make is that this is the only one that the worshiper could eat. Can't eat the whole burnt offering. That's all going to God. Can't eat the sin offering because you can't forgive yourself for your sins. You know, it has to be this one that now you have have atonement with the Lord. Now you're in his presence. You can celebrate with this peace offering. And all through Israel, in, in, in the book of Psalms especially, they would come to the sanctuary, they go through all the sacrifices, come to the peace offering, and you'll see the statements made throughout the Psalms. The poor will hear and rejoice, and they will eat. David says he's lived all of his life. He's never seen poor people begging for bread. People say, well, he's stuck in a palace. How would he ever see them? That's not the point. The point is that the sanctuary was working. Why would anybody on the streets be begging for bread when they go to the temple, have roast beef or roast lamb and everything else that goes with it? Because that's the peace offering. The people will eat because of something that God has done for you. It was always accompanied by praise, and many of those praises found their way into the Psalms where they talk about paying their vows and offering the sacrifice in thanksgiving. Usually it's referred to in the Psalms, and in Hebrews, by the way, as offering to God the sacrifice of praise. Because the evidence in Israel of gratitude was always generosity. No one could stand up and say, boy, God has blessed me and I'm thankful. And if you people had faith, he'd bless you too. Uh, No, 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 that's not it. God has blessed me and I want to share with all of you out of the abundance that he has given to me. That's the mentality. That's how you build community. But it's not artificial. So what they're going to do in a few minutes, they're going to eat this meal. And they're going to eat it in the presence of God. Worship is very simple to define if you just think about it. People will go to a worship service to hear from God, to talk to God, to talk to each other about God, to eat with God. I mean, I don't know how you can make it any more simple, but it's just down the steps, one after another. It's the most normal thing in the world, but it's the holy God. And so this has to be a little different. So they're going to offer these sacrifices, and Moses will collect the blood Again, you can't have this covenant inaugurated without blood, so he collects that. And the first thing he has to do is sanctify the altar, and uh, he does that before they burn anything on it, because this is going to be something that is very holy for them. So that's the sacrificial part that is the preparation. Now we come to the next step after that. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. In other words, I told you this yesterday, you agreed to it. I put it in print, do you still agree with it? And that's what he's doing. So Now, we do it backwards because we're not in inauguration ceremony mode. What we usually do is read the Scripture publicly and then later have 
the message proclaimed. But here it hasn't been written yet, so he proclaims what God says, writes it in the book, reads it to them to make sure you know what you're signing up for. This is it. And they respond the same way. We are willing to do everything the Lord has um, said. We are willing to obey. Complete agreement to the terms of this covenant. So then the next step is that Moses then took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. Uh, I think we have to maybe try to explain that a little bit. I don't really think that Moses went up and down the rows throwing blood all over people. Um, they never did that in the worship of Israel. You didn't, you didn't sprinkle blood on people. The only time you put blood on somebody would be, say, an ordaining a priest. or And basically you put a dab on his earlobe, a dab on his right thumb, and a dab on his big toe uh, to show total consecration. But nobody at the offering was slinging blood over people. I think he's sprinkling this blood on the 12 pillars. doesn't say that, but they represent the 12 tribes. And so he is symbolically representing that this blood is being sprinkled. The other way, some Bible commentators take it as he sprinkled blood toward the people. That's possible, but I still think putting it on something that represents the people. It's more important, it's not so important where he and how he does this, uh, it would have been done uh, properly, and it would have been done with uh, uh, care in the sanctuary. Um, sometimes we don't think of the logistics of these things enough. Um, my uncle retired from a church he pastored for a long time up in Chicago, and they had a fresh new seminarian come in as the new pastor. I don't know where he got the idea, but they were having a baptismal service, and, and it's perfectly normal in liturgical-type services to have all the people renew their baptismal vows when somebody is being baptized. It's a very nice touch. But this guy got it in in his idea that he could take the water, and he could go down the aisle, and he could sling the water this way and sling the water that way, didn't matter that there were silk dresses and silk ties and whatever else. He just thought this was great. Well, I guarantee he never did it again. But uh, we don't have any place where God is having them throw blood on the people or the congregation. But certainly he is sprinkling it either toward them or on these pillars. But then it's what he says that is most important. This is the blood of the covenant. That declaration, we are now entering into a covenant. It is sealed with this blood, his statement. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The sealing of the covenant with this blood of the inauguration ceremony. So that becomes very important in this step. And uh, they will understand then that this is not an ordinary service. Uh, this is an inauguration, and that's always a higher festival that you're dealing with. Now, the next step is a, they offer the peace offering. They have to eat it. A peace offering in Israel, when they offered that in the sanctuary, in the regular yearly services, they had to eat it in the sanctuary. You couldn't take it home and finish it for the next week. Um, you had to consume it. 
on the spot. There was one type of peace offering you could eat the next day, but if you're offering a praise and you make this offering of the peace offering, you eat it in the presence of God because the fire had consumed the part of the animal on the altar. That was God's consuming his part. The rest of the animal was roasted on the altar to become a communal meal. You could eat that. So you're eating with God. Eating with somebody in the Old Testament was always a way of making a treaty. People would uh, get together. They would have a communal meal. They were in a treaty. They offered promises and made vows. But here, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against them, um, against these leaders of the Israelites. So they saw God, they ate, and they drank. See, the statement is being very clear here because most of the people thought if you ever saw God, you'd die. But here they saw the God of Israel, and he didn't kill them. He didn't raise a hand against them because they are at peace with God, because they are now, they're now in coming into this covenant relationship. Go back to Exodus 19. What did they see at the top of the mountain? Dark, thick clouds, lightning, fire, whatever. What do they see here? Crystal clear blue sky under the throne of God. They're at peace with God. The covenant is a covenant of peace. Covenant is in bringing these people into a relationship with the Lord. And God allowed them to see him. I suspect, it doesn't give any details here, but what it does say, they saw the God of Israel and they focus on the pavement under his feet. It looks to me like what they saw was very much what Ezekiel saw, if you read the first couple of chapters of Ezekiel. He sees the throne of God on this platform like sapphire, crystal clear, and his gaze never seems to go higher than the waist, never goes to the face of God, never goes up any higher. Same with John on the island of Patmos. They are seeing the feet and some of the clothing and a platform, which is where the throne is, and uh, they know God is there and sitting there, but they're never going to get a good glimpse uh, into his face. That doesn't happen here. In uh, chapter 33, Moses has a request. The request is to the Lord, show me your glory. In that passage, it's important to note that what, what Moses is looking for is something more. He has seen the glory here of the Lord on this throne. He has seen the pillar of fire. He has seen the cloud and leads them through the wilderness. He has seen all these manifestations, and yet he wants more. At that point, the Greek translation of the Hebrew is really very, very good. They don't translate kavod, glory, with doxa. They translate it with a pronoun, se'autu, show me yourself. I've seen the fire, I've seen the pillar, I've seen the cloud, I've seen the throne. I want to see the real you. And that's when God puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. can only see the bath parts as the Lord goes by. But he wanted to see the real person that was there. Once again, we would probably say because of the use of the appearances of the Lord in Exodus 
that you're re- that he's really seeing here the second person of the Godhead. There is support for that, which we'll be talking about tomorrow. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and seated on a throne, you got the same question. Is this the Father? Is this the Son? Whatever. Jesus says it was he that Isaiah saw. And so we don't have any questions about the way this is to be identified. But they see God. And this would have been normally the dramatic, life-changing event for them. And then to sit there in the presence of God and to eat the peace offering. You may find it interesting that the peace offering is exactly what the Passover was, because it's the only sacrifice they could eat. And this was a form of the peace offering. And the peace offering and the Passover together become the background of Holy Communion. Um, They are eating the meat of the animal, but it represents something greater. And they're not quite sure what and how. And we are eating things that are not exactly the sacrifice of Christ, but they certainly signify that. So there's a big connection between Holy Communion and the peace offering that needs to be pursued in your study. So they saw God, they ate, and they drank. Once they eat with God, they have sealed the covenant, and it's going to be guaranteed. But then something happens that takes it a step further. Uh, This is the last step. After they do that, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commands I have written for their instruction. And then Moses set out with Joshua his aid, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and uh, anyone who has a question or dispute can go to them. And then Moses went up on the mountain, The cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days, and the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. So to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And Moses entered the cloud, and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. What you are observing here is the drama of cutting a covenant. And you can't help but see the connections between Exodus and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his ministry on earth, spent much time giving to his disciples and through them the world uh, to the world the laws, the commandments, the stipulations that the people who followed him in faith were to keep and to observe. And so there was this constant teaching of the message of God by the one who was the word of God. And so there was all that instruction. But when it came time to inaugurate the covenant, Jesus chose a Passover. And in the Passover, they would celebrate a little differently. And what happened is that, as you know, and you've done this many times, I'm sure, but when Jesus 
put the words of interpretation onto the bread and onto the wine. He drew in passages of Scripture that we don't really take time with. When he got to the cup, he drew together three passages. One is Exodus 24, 8. This is the blood of the covenant. But he added something from Jeremiah 31. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out, shed for many. And by using the word many, he has brought in Isaiah 53, because that's the key word in the whole chapter. It occurs many times. Many. Those three passages are brought together. But by the fact that he is using similar words to what Moses used in Mount Sinai, is, is meant to declare that the new covenant is now being inaugurated in his blood and with his body. But it's also saying that at this point, the old covenant that was inaugurated by Moses is no longer valid. It is now going to be the new covenant that people will follow. And it will not be with the blood of animals and, and goats. It's going to be with the blood of the Son of God himself. Because it's an eternal covenant. And it is a supernatural covenant in every stretch of the imagination. Jesus inaugurates it in the upper room. Then he goes to the cross and he seals it with his own blood on the cross. And a few weeks later, just as Moses went up in the clouds and into the top of the mountain, telling people to wait until he comes back, Jesus ascended into heaven in the clouds and telling the people to wait and watch for his return. The dramas, as I mentioned uh, before, there's, there's, they, they are recycled because God had much more in mind here in Exodus 24 than we have been able to see or been willing to see. But when you start making the parallels and the connections, then you can understand that God was indeed the schoolmaster leading us to Christ. And in here... We have an inauguration service with Israel, and it's going to be a parallel to the inauguration of the New Covenant. And so when we celebrate the New Covenant, it is in the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or Holy Communion, whatever you call it, it actually becomes for us a covenant renewal ceremony. It is certainly not a wake for a dead man. Uh, we are not just simply to sit there and look sad for a while while we have the cup and the bread. Because when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, you must understand that in the Bible, the word to remember means to act on what you remember. I mean, you can see this all through the Bible. Um, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's not expecting in heaven Jesus would say, yeah, I remembered that guy on the cross. It's not it at all. He wants God to act on his behalf. And likewise, if you find confession for sin and go through with the legitimate repentance and confession, and you have the scripture saying that God remembers your sins no more, or he forgets them. Well, he can't forget them. He's divine. He's omniscient. But it means... He'll never bring them up. Your family might. <laughs> your church might. But no, if you truly repent and confess your sin, God will never act on them. Because judicially, he has forgotten them, meaning he will not act. 
But if you have Holy Communion, you're doing it in remembrance of Christ. It means that everything about the death of Christ, everything about the inauguration of this new covenant, everything that that means to you is something that you are going to have to now live out. And you need to find out what are the stipulations and the commandments for the new covenant. What should I be doing to take this inaugural ceremony, which we are reenacting in Holy Communion, and to use it in remembrance of Christ so that we are showing that this is a living covenant and we are continually trying to do what the stipulations require. But at the same time, you're doing it in faith because God made promises in Christ for the new covenant that he has yet to be uh, fulfilling. And so you are also in your own mind praying for the Lord to come, for the Lord to fulfill his promises. So it's not just sit there and think for a few moments about Jesus on the cross. It's the new covenant. What should I be doing? What is he yet supposed to be doing? And it's prayer and it's commitment and it's faith because it's a covenant renewal ceremony, just like the Israelites' covenant renewals uh, that they enter into enthusiastically. And if we did more of that, maybe we'd have more commitments and more obedience and more missions and more evangelism and everything else because we know we have been brought into a covenant, but that covenant has some requirements and that covenant has some promises. And we're trying to reactivate that every time we worship with Holy Communion. Father, I pray that as we think in terms of the way that you have worked with Israel, and then fulfilled that within the life of our Lord in this world and his establishing of the new covenant with all that that involves, with all that that is promising, that we too would be willing to say all that the Lord has said we are willing to do and eager to obey, and that that commitment would carry over into every day of the week as we seek to serve the living Lord who gave his life as the ransom for us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Great. Thank you. Once again, good connections, pulling things together. All right. We have time for Q&A. So, who? Oh, there's one question in the back. He's he is already standing up and waving his arm. So then, Jesus is our burnt offering, correct? And this is. The celebration of the table is a peace offering, right. and we should celebrate. Yes. Thank you. Jesus is, when you study Leviticus and the sacrifices, you get a much richer view of the death of Christ. He's the whole burnt offering. He's the dedication offering. He's the sin offering. He's the peace offering. All of those are picked up and, and stated with regard to Christ in the New Testament. And so uh, it's looking at, looking at every little aspect of the death of Christ and all the things he accomplished. Right. 
Do you have your copy of the Leviticus commentary with you? It's in the hotel room. It's in the hotel room. Okay. <laughs> you bring that in the morning. I'm going to bring the other books in the okay. morning, and then we'll have those set out. But that, okay. that's an outstanding, outstanding commentary on Leviticus. Okay. Do you have another one? I have one. So we've had two studies, and, and I just wonder if, or have you developed these or printed these studies in some context? I, I get, uh, where would we find your thoughts on this in writing? Um, not exactly any place in exactly the way I said it here, uh, but basically in the commentaries on, on, like on Genesis 22 for the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, the commentary on Exodus hasn't come out yet, but 24 would be in there. Um, in Leviticus, all the sacrifices with their details uh, laid out. Um, so it's it's basically a distillation of a lot of things that have come together, and I keep adding to them and sorting them out. It's a pleasure to come at, to a conference like this rather than to try to do this in a seven-minute sermon on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of this, is, Greg, some of this is pulled together in recalling the hope of glory on, on worship. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dr. Ross, thank you for that exposition. Uh, in your introduction, you mentioned the Book of Romans. Mm-hmm. Okay, in your introduction, you mentioned the Book of Romans and yeah. some of the offering there. Don't know if you have time, or that might be a different message to maybe go into a little bit more detail on that. Okay. Um, if you think through the Book of Romans, we can do it in two or three minutes. Um, you start off with Paul's discussion about creation, revealing the glory of God, and so on, and, and that um, he adds about how their their conscience would convict them of sin and things like that. But then he gets into describing how the law came in alongside of that and uh, made them aware of their sins. So he's really rushing through creation, the fall. God giving them up to worship the creatures rather than the creator, the law coming in, convicting them of sin. And that takes up, you know, the first couple of chapters to create the need. The Israelites knew the need because they have come out of their experiences. So you get to chapter 3 and you are first introduced to the atoning sacrifice that God sent forth his son to be a propitiation and atonement and so on. And he's really summarizing there the whole burnt offering and probably a good segment of the uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So you, you have God dealing with the, the sin by presenting Christ as that atoning sacrifice, and that covers a couple of things. Uh, then the question comes up, well, is it automatic? No. So you have chapter 4 that says it isn't going to mean anything unless you have faith. And so you've got this lengthy discussion about how faith is what is required and um, discusses Abram before the law was given, that he believed, had righteousness, and so on. And then after that, he, he actually gets into some sacrificial stuff where he talks about how when Christ died, and if I'm in Christ, I died with him, just like the Israelite would see the animal crumpling to the ground and he, he should be dead and whatever. But then uh, out of that uh, comes the grand declaration that we have peace with God. And so 
we as Christians can celebrate being at peace with God, and the best way to do it is with the uh, Lord's Supper, which is a result of the uh, peace offering, Passover, and so on. So it becomes a very important step there. Um, and then after that, he will get into uh, the problem with the uh, human nature and the sin, uh, because the Israelites, you know, they could go back and do the sacrifices every couple of weeks, every year, whatever. But Christ died only once and for all. So what, what, what now should happen? Because we sin, we continue to sin, and yet Christ died only once. So what, what is going to take the place of having to go and do this all over again? And, uh, and basically it's the Holy Spirit that he gave us the Holy Spirit that leads us into righteousness and makes intercession for us and all the details of the chapter, whatever. And then he has an an interlude in there, 9, 10, and 11, that kind of breaks the, the, the train of thought, but it's very important to his argument, what happened to Israel? What, what, did, what went wrong there? And uh, basically he describes the rebellion and the sin and and how the uh, Gentiles were grafted into the tree and and so on. And when he's through with that, come to chapter 12, and now he can get to the third level of these sacrifices. We had the atoning one. We had the peace offering. Now you can get to the dedication sacrifice. And I pres- you know, beseech you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So this is not a bloody sacrifice. Uh, you're already atoned for, you're already at peace with God. Now you owe him your life. And uh, everything about your life is going to be now driven by the new covenant, which is the law of love. And that's the basic theme that runs through the rest of the book of Romans. There's a lot of little details along the way that you have to throw in there too, but he's he's clearly well-versed in the way God has laid out the sacrifices and laid out the order of getting close and into the presence of God. And, uh, you know, they knew if Christ was the fulfillment of all these sacrifices, he would also have to be the fulfillment of things that are not bloody sacrifices, like the dedication sacrifice. People would go for the Leviticus 2. didn't have to be an animal. It could be a basket of fruit. could be pancakes, not like yours. But there would be all these foods that they have, and they bring to God. And there was a liturgy that they would have to say. And the liturgy was written in Psalm 40. Um, here I am, a body you have prepared for me. In the volume of the book it is prescribed from, for me. Here I come to do your will, which is my delight. That's what they would say. The apostles realized that if Christ fulfills all the other sacrifices, he has to fulfill that too. So Hebrews 10 quotes from Psalm 40. And uh, it's, you can see he, they're always bringing these sacrifices up to a higher notch. I can say God prepared a body for me. I am what he designed. But I can't say it in the way Jesus did. God prepared a body for him by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. That was clear. And uh, I can say, here I come, I delight to do your will, and once in a while I mean it. Uh, But uh, Christ only did that which was pleasing to God. And uh, then I can say, well, in the volume of the book it is prescribed for me. It teaches me how to live and obey. Yeah, but it didn't prophesy me. And in Christ, it, he follows the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, but it's also about him. Search the scriptures because they speak of me. So they keep taking all these sacrifices 
and pulling them together in the New Testament. And uh, Paul is very adept at that. So does, so does the writer of the Hebrews. I mean, he knows the sacrifices extremely well. Anyway, there's more to it, but that will give you an idea of where the thing goes. <laughs> It's like a revival meeting. I see that hand. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ross. Um, would you walk through how you understand the exegesis of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Israel and Judah, versus, and, and so seeming like, a, from our perspective, like an eschatological thing, versus what Jesus does with the new covenant in Matthew 26? I mean, the church in Israel question. Yeah. Well, I think the I think the key is really in Romans 11. Um, the covenant was clearly made with Israel. It was their covenant, just as Jesus was their Messiah, and the kingdom that was promised was promised to them, and uh, and yet. Uh, it's all of grace because when Israel is its most disobedient and being sent into exile, when you would think God was through with them, he announces, hey, I've got a new covenant for you, and this will be fulfilled. There's about ten promises between Isaiah 54, Ezekiel 36, and Jeremiah 31. You've got about a dozen promises for the new covenant, and most people don't know what they are, but they're none of them done away with. Uh, in the New Testament, when Jesus uh, quotes from Psalm 118, and have you never read what he says, the meaning of this is that the, this kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to a nation, a, a group, a, a people that uh, will bear fruit. And so you have, with the rejection of Christ, you don't have God changing his mind about the new covenant. Uh, because he not only prophesied the new covenant, he prophesied their disobedience, he prophesied they would kill him, he prophesied all that was going to take place. But uh, they are still responsible for what they did, and so the the great privileges of being the people of God and being uh, part of this covenant community that uh, they've been waiting for all their lives, um, they're going to see Gentiles being coming in. That also was prophesied. Malachi said, if they won't obey, then I'll go to the Gentiles, I'll go to the nations. So Paul comes along and talks on this issue and says, um, have, his, have the people of Israel sinned irrefutably? Uh, no, no way. Um, he says basically that we as the church have been grafted in to their um, covenant, uses the image of the tree, not a replacement of them because the root of the tree are the covenant that begins with Abraham in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus does the same thing when he names Peter. Um, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And I'm not interested right now what everybody thinks that means. But he's really alluding to the, to the book of Isaiah. Go to the rock from which you were hewn, uh, which is Abram and Sarah, the Abrahamic covenant. And so it's paralleled with what Jesus is doing, that the covenant is based upon the promises made to Abraham and continued in the promises that are guaranteed with subsequent promises. Because the Abrahamic covenant promise made clear in the covenant, be a great nation, you'll have land, 
Uh, you'll be the channel of blessing to the world. There will be kings coming from the womb of Sarah. And so all the subsequent covenants, like the Sinaitic covenant, is about the promise of the blessing of the seed. Davidic covenant is going to be the promises of the blessing of the king. Deuteronomic covenant is the land. So each of those covenants is doing this. And then the deterioration sets in in Israel, and they are thrown out of the land. And they think it's the end. But it's at that moment the Lord says, I'm going to make a new covenant. So the question is, what's new about the new covenant? He's taking all the promises that were there in all those old covenants, and he is bringing them forward to saying, I'm going to do them, but you're going to, it's going to be great. It's going to be better than you can imagine. So what Paul does is said, if, if God lopped off the natural branches of the tree and grafted you in as, uh, as branches grafted into that tree, you're part of the Abrahamic covenant, and if you don't obey the Lord and trust him, uh, he can cut off you as well, like he cut off the natural branches. And then he continues by explaining if if their disobedience, meaning the Jewish people rejecting Christ and so on, if their disobedience meant our salvation, imagine what their restoration will mean so that he sees a glorious future for Israel because he quotes from Isaiah at the very end that after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. So the plan is that for this time being, there is a, there is a hardening that is there with Israel. doesn't mean Israelites can't come to faith, but as a whole, there's that hardening. And yet he is saying that uh, God is not finished. And this is what he is amazed with, the wisdom and knowledge of God, that, that now he's turned to the Gentiles. Why did he turn to the Gentiles? Well, one of the reasons, Paul says, is to make Israel jealous. And we don't make anybody jealous, let alone Israelites. But to show them, hey, this is your Messiah. This is your covenant. Uh, this is, and we've been grafted into it, and we're going to share in this eternal covenant. But while the promises of the covenant are unconditional and eternal, participation in them requires faith. So that that's why Paul can say, all Israel will be saved, but it's my heart's desire now that these people will come to faith. Because if they're not alive at the end of the age, they're not going anywhere. And this is what's sad in Israel today. You have many people coming back to the land of Israel, and I think in one way or another, it's like when they came back to the Babylonian covenant, they are actually enjoying the benefit of one of the promises of the new covenant to be restored to the land. But if they don't come to faith in the true Messiah, that's all the benefit they will get from the new covenant. They lived in Israel. But if they trust in the Lord, then um, living in Israel is just a minor, minor part of the benefits of the new covenant. They'll be, they'll be in heaven with uh, all the saints and... So we have one huge company of the redeemed, and uh, it's made up of Jews and Gentiles, but now God is working mostly through the Gentiles, and uh, not, to, not in the extent that in pride we could say, well, you know, you had it, you lost it, we got it. Um, no, it's, it should be like Paul. His compassion and love is to, 
is to remind these people that they had the scriptures, they had the prophets, they they had the covenants, they had the sacrifices, and yet uh, that most of them uh, not really interested in any of that. Um, I was listening to somebody on the news the other day talking about why why Jewish people usually always vote very left-wing politics, in, especially in New York, whatever. He says, well, mostly, he says, they're bagel Jews. Uh, they like the culture. They're Jewish. They like the culture. They like the foods. They like the ceremonies. But they don't know a thing about the promises to Israel. They don't know a thing about the covenant. They don't know a thing about God's plan for the future and uh, how the church fits into that. Um, there's a couple of very, very good little books um, on this whole question that you're asking. Um, just drew a blank on the author's name. I'll think of it. Uh, it was actually a dissertation that was done at the Vatican, and it was it's titled Israel and the Church. Uh, hmm? Yeah, Diprose, yes. Uh, that's really worth reading. Um, he, deals with, he deals with the um, replacement theory that was brought in by Origen's allegorical method as one of the greatest heresies in the life of the church because what it opened it up for was persecution of the Jews, ultimately the Holocaust, everything else, which um, total misreading of Scripture, but those are huge subjects. Um, I think... I think it's a good place in a seminar to have a course on Israel and the church then and now and in the future and whatever. Um, so it's it's encouraging for me when I see things going on in Israel. There are some <coughs> rabbis that have come to faith and they don't want to announce it publicly because they want to bring their congregations with them. So they don't want anybody uh, probing too deeply. But there's some there's some movements that are taking place, and uh, and that shouldn't take us by surprise because that's what God said He was going to do. So, a lot of material there. I don't know if I can answer that in a very quick answer, but that's the gist of it, at any rate. Mm.